you can head off to Children's Church and enjoy that. Uh, and you all are dismissed. Um, the uh, uh, Just a reminder, we do have Sunday school for younger ones. Karen and I, we've had as few as three and as many as 13, I think, in that class. And it's a bunch of fun. Uh, we have a great time going through the Bible together, all of all 104 major stories of the Bible we go through. Um, we, there's coloring, there's Plato, there's the Bible. It's great. Okay, we love it. Today we made Lot's wife uh, out of salt and uh, reminded people that God is a just judge. But anyway, if you're not coming to that with your kids, I uh, certainly encourage you to, uh, to do that. Uh, I'm excited to bring a new sermon series with you this morning through the short and spicy letter of James, all right? Uh, and as you make your way to James chapter 1, where we'll begin this morning, I want to introduce this book to you. First of all, who is James? There's a couple different guys named James. There's uh, Big James and Little James that follow Jesus, or James the Less and James the Great. Uh, as they uh, refer to them in, uh, in the Gospels. Um, there's also, um, there's also uh, another guy named James that you may not have, have heard of or be aware of. Uh, Jesus had younger brothers and sisters. Okay, If you grew up Roman Catholic, maybe you didn't know that, but that's what the Bible says, that Jesus had younger, younger half-brothers uh, because obviously Joseph was their their biological father in a way that he was not Jesus' biological father. Uh, so Jesus had half-brothers and, and sisters, at least three brothers that we know of. The oldest one of the younger brothers was a guy named James. And James um, was not initially a believer in Jesus. Uh, in fact, um, he probably led the group of Jesus' brothers and sisters who wanted to come grab hold of Jesus while he was going around preaching and proclaiming himself the Messiah because they decided that uh, Big Brother had slipped a gear. Like, we think Jesus, Jesus slid off his cracker and we got to go get him because we think he's nuts, right? Because who goes around proclaiming they are the incarnate Son of God? By the way, if one of your brothers or sisters goes around proclaiming themselves to be the incarnation of deity and, um, and that they are the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation and hope, do not believe them. That's a fairly uh, remarkable claim, right? Unless uh, they are able to do things like raise the dead, uh, heal the lame, the blind, uh, calm the storm, cast out demons, and themselves be crucified, killed, and raised from the dead. In which case, there's some additional data you need to account for. Right? And, um, and in fact, that's what happened to James. James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah at any point throughout Jesus' ministry until a certain thing happened. And that is that Jesus died, was crucified, and was raised from the dead. And then he started showing up and appearing to people. And Paul gives us a partial list of people that he appeared to, and one of them is this guy, James. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he shows up 
at Big Brother's, at, at, well, actually, Little Brother's house, James' house, and says, hey, James, remember me? <laughs> right? And I don't know that that's actually what he said, but, but it must have been something like that. Right? James, remember you didn't believe in me. You really ought to rethink. <laughs> right? And James does the logical thing in that circumstance. He recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. And I missed it all this time. I grew up with him 33 years. I knew him and he lived in my house. And I never knew he was the living, breathing Son of God. But he must be. Here he is. And James becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem. After this, he, his faith takes off like a rocket. And he becomes one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Um, uh, he is probably, uh, to use our terms, a uh, senior pastor, if you will, of First Church Jerusalem. Uh, he is probably also the principal author of the letter that resulted from the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 that welcomed into the church and integrated into the church the first Gentile Christians. And importantly for this letter, he was the leader in the Jerusalem church when in Acts chapter 8, do you remember this? Acts chapter 8, uh, there's an important man, one of the first deacons, a man named Stephen, who is stoned to death. And Saul is there approving of his death. Probably supervising the group of people that turns Stephen into a pile of rocks. And on that same day, now think about this, on that same day, you would think one of the leaders of the group of Christians gets killed violently by a mob and everybody else in town sympathizes with that. Right? I can't believe people did that to your friend. Is that what happened? No, Acts chapter 8 says, on that day, a great persecution led by Saul of Tarsus broke out and all of the church had to leave town except for the apostles. To put it in perspective, earlier in the book of Acts, we learned that there are 5,000 just men in the church at Jerusalem. So how many people are leaving town? Well, if you assume that most of that group is married and they're taking their wives and children, you're talking at least 10,000 people you will all of a sudden have to beat feet out of town because the entire city wants nothing to do with them and they have to evacuate. This is an amazing thing. They get launched out of the city. Where do they go? They go to Judea and Samaria. Some of them go up to Antioch, which is the first place, by the way, that followers of Jesus are called Christians. Right? They get out of town. Are they a group of people who are beloved everywhere they go? No. There are people who have lost their homes, who've lost their jobs. There are people whose own family turned against them. 
There are people running for their lives from the persecution led by Saul. Now that doesn't last because Saul's about to have a moment on this, right? But this is a group of people who nonetheless are forcibly displaced from their houses. At least 10,000 of them. And so this letter is written to these people. It would be like if all of a sudden all of you had to leave town because of Christian persecution and then you got a letter from me telling you how to live a Christian life in this new place, the new setting. That's what this is. And, um, and James addresses... Now, I'm not writing any Spirit-inspired letters, okay? So uh, don't take what I say as the Word of God. The Word of God is in here. It's not coming out of my mouth except to the extent that what I say and what this says are the same. Okay? Don't be confused. There are no more living apostles. Uh, all the ones that saw the resurrected Jesus are all the ones there are. There aren't any more. Um, but um, J James, in the beginning of this letter, refers to these people. He, he uses a term. They're called the dispersion. Okay, The Greek word there is diaspora. And it's the word for the exile. And it gets first used about the people who were exiled from Jerusalem in the, um, in the fall of Jerusalem after Babylon came and took them over, right? The people after that refer to themselves as the people of the dispersion because they were scattered throughout the world after Babylon took them over. And so James is linking what's just happened to them. You've had to leave Babel, you've had to leave Jerusalem by force, and you've scattered across the um, the Mediterranean world to that earlier experience, six hundred years in the past. And he's saying this is the same kind of experience. You guys are living in exile. How do you live as believers in Christ when you are no longer on home court? When this is an away game, how do you do it? And what he does is he takes in this letter and he takes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he lines it up with how you need to live life in the here and now. In fact, there are at least a dozen places where James is giving us commentary on the Sermon on the Mount for how to live in a practical way in the here and now when you're in exile when you're not home, when everybody around you and your culture may well hate you. So, um, this is a letter for people living in a world where everyone is newly hostile to their faith. I wonder if this would have any application for us today. Right? Actually, I don't wonder. I know that it does. So, with that in mind, uh, I want to encourage you, if you're able, to stand, and we're going to read the first four verses together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet 
trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank You that You have given us Your Word and You have made it so practical for us. You have put all the cookies on the bottom shelf that we can reach them. And Father, um, help us to uh, dig them all out of the bag here this morning and savor them and enjoy them, be nourished by them and encouraged and challenged by Your Word. Help us, Father, to to build new habits in this new year and to rejoice in you as we do. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'd be seated. Uh, look again at verse 1 with me. As I mentioned a minute ago, James has written to people who were driven out of their homes, who were part of a new dispersion. This time, the believing members of Israel's 12 tribes. In other words, these are Jewish Christians. There aren't any really Gentile Christians at this time. There's Cornelius and his family, but that's it. Um, but God had a magnificent purpose in that. Uh, and He is using the persecution that they are suffering to carry out the Great Commission. Remember how the Great Commission goes at the end of Matthew, uh, chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, uh, 18 to 20. It says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And make disciples of who? All the nations. All the nations. Baptize, uh, you know, and he, and he says, it, uh, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? Well, where was the church? Oh, we made it to Jerusalem. Right? So what did this do? What did this do? It kicked them out. Everybody had gotten, uh, if you'll forgive me the phrase, fat and happy in Jerusalem. Right? They got comfortable. They had their, their, fuzzy, their fuzzy slippers on. Right? Everything is great here. We don't need to go anywhere. And God said, you need to go. He uses this persecution to drive them out of Jerusalem and drive them to Judea and Samaria and the beginnings of the uttermost parts of the earth. Because like I say, some of them wind up in Antioch and Syria, and from there they carry the gospel across the Mediterranean. All around. So God has this, uh, this, sa this saving purpose for the nations that He is carrying out by this act of persecution. But they don't know that yet. They haven't put all the pieces together. Uh, in the immediate situation, none of them are thinking about that. They're thinking about, their thinking like, goes like this. Think of, see if this sounds at all familiar or resonates with you. I just lost my job and my home, most of my possessions. I had to leave town with only what I could carry on my back or in my hands. My friends and my family didn't sympathize with me when I saw my brother and my friend Stephen stoned to death. Instead, they cut me off from relationship with them because nobody wanted to be associated with a Christian. Even my mom doesn't want to talk to me anymore. This is the situation that they're in. 
I've lived my whole life here and I'm driven from my home. I lost everything in one day and nobody wants to help me. Now imagine, you're the senior pastor of a church that is virtually emptied out because thousands of the people you loved and shepherded have left town fleeing this kind of persecution. They're being arrested and thrown in prison. After you greet them, and say, hi, everybody, remember me? <laughs> right? What are you going to say next? Look at verse 2. This is what it says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Does that shock you or surprise you in any way? It's certainly not the normal response when I meet trials of various kinds. Amen? Uh, when things go sideways in my life, you know what my normal default response is? Complaining to all and sundry who will listen to me for five minutes. Go through a litany of ain't it awful and how terrible this is. Right? But what James is doing here, not only in this verse, and verses 3 and 4, again, is giving us a practical commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And what he highlights here, what he's highlighting here, is Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, where Jesus says, Rejoice when you're persecuted. Because being persecuted is really a form of God's blessing. Now, is that upside down or what? No, that's right side up. That's the right way of looking at life. The way I look at it is upside down. Amen? And so what James is doing here is reminding his beloved former congregation members of what they know from Jesus. That persecution is really a blessing. And problems are privileges. God is doing something important in your life when you face problems and trials. And these trials are helpful to you. Whether they come in the form of a broken water heater like I had two weeks ago. That was fun. Right? Five days with no water in the house. And we're using the bucket to flush the toilet and all that. That was great. Right? Um, I'm still not rejoicing in that one. <laughs> um, I'd like to be, but I, it was not that fun. Right? It's a minor inconvenience. But it was a trial. It was not how I wanted to spend Christmas with my kids. Uh, maybe it's a serious illness. Like you, you know, we mentioned uh, our sister Brittany DuPont is very, very ill. In the hospital for the second time in the last week. And been fighting this illness for several weeks now. Serious illness can be a trial. Maybe it's a serious and sustained persecution like these people have suffered. The issue here, as James says, is it doesn't matter. Your, your, your Bible may read, depending on your translation, it may say, consider it all joy, consider it pure joy. The idea is, is, that, is that this is straight up joyful. Pure, unadulterated joy. Consider it pure joy. 
when you consider all these things to be a source of joy. Counting all of them as joy. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the difficulty, count them all as joy. What does that mean? Are you supposed to like play pretend? You know, like the cowardly lion and the wizard of Oz. I do believe in spooks. I do believe. You know, like he's you know just playing pretend, right? Like that. We're just supposed to believe what we don't actually think, what we don't actually feel, and just say, "Well, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. I'm so glad this happened to me." Right? No. What it means is that we decide. This is an act of the will. Not, a, not necessarily an action of your emotions. Your emotions follow after you make a decision of your will that I'm going to look at this situation from God's perspective. I'm going to look at it from God's perspective and I'm going to decide to regard trials as privileges and blessings and see them that way and know that if... I, if I respond to these things rightly. That's what they will be for me. So you regard even terrible suffering as joyful by, number one, refusing to complain. Again, this, this, this passage just rebuked me up one side and down the other in my office all week. Right? I'm going to decide to refuse to complain. And then I'm going to decide instead to rejoice in the opportunity God is giving me to honor Him in whatever this is instead. This is something I'm going to work on, I think, probably all year, maybe longer. Not be a complainer. God is giving you an opportunity to honor Him in your circumstances especially when they're tough. The tougher they are, the bigger opportunity you have to honor God. A problem is a privilege. A bummer is a blessing. There's an opportunity to rejoice in Jesus despite your circumstances. Now, remember when Peter and John... Uh, got flogged by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5. Remember that? It's a great story. The same place where Jesus got beaten by the Sanhedrin. Like a couple of weeks later, John and Peter are in the back in that same spot getting beaten by the same people that beat their, their Lord. And it says in Acts chapter 5, they went out rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. Now, every time I read that, it rebukes me. Because every time I read that, I go, I don't know if that would be me. I don't know if I have... Um, I don't know if I have that level of steel in my spine that somebody can flog me publicly and shame me and humiliate me and I go out of there saying, thank you Jesus for giving me the opportunity to suffer for your name. 
I got to grow into that one. Or how about Acts chapter 16? Paul and Silas get themselves arrested. They are publicly beaten. Then they are put into the stocks inside a prison, which I don't know if you can... This is not like prison like today where the floor is clean and there's a working toilet with indoor plumbing. They are sitting in filth and in nastiness. And you know what they're doing at midnight? Praising God and singing hymns. I want to be the kind of guy who sings hymns in the prison after I've been flogged and beaten and arrested without a trial. I want to be that guy. I want to be one of these kind of people. And if that's ever going to be me, then I'm going to have to decide in the moment how I'm going to respond. And that I'm not going to respond when a trial comes my way with complaining, but with rejoicing instead that God is giving me the blessing and the privilege of rejoicing in Him because of what has just happened, and I'm starting then to look for God's purpose and how He's going to use this to glorify Him and to do me good. Amen? I'm going to have to start looking for what God is trying to do in me and through me. Because what what happened after Peter and John went out rejoicing? Well, people took notice of that. And more people came to faith in Jesus. What happened when Paul and Silas are singing hymns in the prison? All of a sudden, Jesus decided, we need a jailbreak for these guys. And the walls of the place began to shake. The chains fell off. And Paul had to tell everybody, all right, nobody leave. God is doing something important. Philippian jailer comes in. He comes to faith in Jesus on the spot. That night, his family hears about what's happened. They come to faith in Jesus. They become part of the nucleus of the church in Philippi. And they receive the most joyful letter in the New Testament. Because these are people who learned how to rejoice in suffering from a guy who actually did it. Amen? I want to be that guy. I want to grow into that. I want to learn how to rejoice whatever circumstances I'm in. Um, and if you're looking for God's purpose, you don't have to look very far because you can see it in verse 3. It says, for you know, in other words, because you are aware that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, verse 3 is more explanation on how to do this. James says, Consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word know here translates an underlying Greek word. It's the word gnosko, which carries the idea of exp experiential knowledge. Right? Like, I'm not all that gifted in uh, in anything car related, 
like if stuff starts, smoke starts rolling out of the car, like I'm going to be that guy who pops the hood and looks at it and is like, huh, <laughs> right? Like I wonder what's going on there, <laughs> right? Um, but I, I know how to do some things, right? I know how to change oil. I know how to call the mechanic on the phone. Right? Uh, I know by experience how to do these things. Right? And that's the word that, 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 um, that Paul is using, I mean, James rather is using here. Uh, the idea of experiential knowledge, not just what you know in your head, but what you know deep in your gut. Because God's word is true and you have believed it on this issue of your life. It's the confidence that you carry into the situation that says that I know God's purpose in my suffering is to produce steadfastness. Or your Bible might read, uh, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Both of those are good translations. Let me explain what perseverance is or what steadfastness means. Uh, a few years ago, there was this show on TV. I don't know if it's still on or not. I don't still get the channel. Uh, but uh, on the History Channel, there was this show called Forged in Fire. Have you all seen this? Okay. I was part of that trend for a while of white-collar guys watching blue-collar men do their jobs. Right? And, and so they had all these blacksmiths on there, right? Which is weird, right? Like, you know, ice road truckers, you know, dangerous catch, all this kind of thing. It's primarily people who have office jobs that watch this. And and um, and so on Forged in Fire, what they're doing is is this very cool manly thing, right? It's a bunch of blacksmiths. Uh, they take a hunk of steel and they stick it in a fire and they get it red hot and then they bring it over to this anvil and then they beat it with a hammer into a sword or into a knife, right? All things that men love, right? Fire hammers, swords. I mean, this is like made for me, right? And uh, and that's the process, right? Blacksmithing is really not that complicated. You take the metal, and then you heat it, and then you beat it. And then you fold it over, and you heat it, and you beat it some more. And you heat it and beat it until you finally get it in the shape that you want. And then you heat it one more time red hot and then you stick it down in a tank of oil to quench it. And then you sharpen that dude up and you put it to the test. Right? And at the end of the show, they had these master knifesmiths, bladesmiths who would test these things. And they would do to these knives and swords stuff that you should never do with any tool that you actually like. Right? Like they would take, they'd be like, now we're going to try the antler chop. This is a bad idea. This is a good way to wreck the blade on anything you actually like, right? But they would, they would take this, this knife, lay it across a piece of deer antler, and take a hammer and beat on it and see how much antler it chopped and how big of an indent made in the steel. They take this, they do, the, they have these tatami mats that, that's got these big tight rolls, and they take that, swing that sword. They stick it in a you know silicone body, uh, see how much blood, you know, fake blood was generated by that. I mean, it's a cool show, right? Like I say, it's made for men. It's awesome. Um, but um, 
But the idea is, is that the master craftsman puts the thing to the test. And of course, at the end of the show, the the bladesmith with the best knife or best sword walks away with ten grand. Great reward. So with that illustration in mind, what do you think steadfastness or perseverance is? It's durability and usefulness under strain. When you're tested. When life goes sideways. It's the result of a life of faith when God turns up the heat and starts beating you into shape in conformity to Christ. He is beating you into conformity with Jesus so that you look like Him. He is a master craftsman. He wants you to be a useful tool in His hands, but the only way you can get there is to be tempered by difficulty and tested through painful trial. If you ask the steel when it's on the anvil how it's feeling right now, the answer is probably not great. But He wants our faith to be durable. Able to stand up to difficulty with joy because that is precisely what Jesus did at the cross. Remember? The book of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you might might not grow weary and lose heart. It also says about Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Right? There is joy to be found in trial because you are you have decided I'm going to glorify God in this. And there is also, just like that TV show, great reward on the other end for doing so. So how do how do we how do how does that work itself out? Well, verse four. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what James is telling us here? That there isn't any shortcut. That you're gonna have to joyfully submit to this process in your life that God has ordained, that God, excuse me, is using in order to achieve it. If you want to be a great athlete, you've got to show up to practice. The harder you practice as an athlete, the easier time you have in the games. If you wimp out at practice, you'll never be great in the game. Same thing is true in the Christian life. If you want to have a durable, persevering, steadfast faith, you have to do what the 18th century Uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon said, you need to learn to kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. He is making you great in faith. Amen? His goal is not your comfort, but your conformity to Christ. And if you yield to the process, and by the way, again, I'm preaching here, but I'm preaching to myself, y'all. Because I'm sick of being a complainer and I want to be a rejoicer instead. If 
you yield to the process here and decide to rejoice despite suffering because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness in you, then you will find yourself one day on the other side of that trial. As James describes it, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does that mean sinless? No. It means mature and looking very much like Jesus Christ. And that's the goal. Amen? So let's decide together. You and I, here it is, beginning of 2024, beginning of a new year, that today we're going to start working towards the goal of being steadfast in faith and stop being complainers and start being rejoicers when trial comes. Counting all things as joy that we might have steadfast faith that looks like Jesus. Amen? So let's pray because we're going to need a whole bunch of help from the Holy Spirit to do that. That's impossible apart from Him. Amen? But with Jesus, by His Holy Spirit working in us, this will happen. And it will be God's honor and delight to see it happen in us. He who began a good work in you will compare it, will continue it to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? And He will finish it. So, we're going to pray and ask God to do what He's promised to do. God, our Heavenly Father, we do consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we do not grow weary and we do not lose heart. And Father, we want to do what this passage says, to count everything as joy. Not because everything is, is amazing or awesome, but because You are amazing and awesome and You have shown us in Christ how to rejoice in suffering. And Father, we pray that we would replace complaining and grumbling and fussing and, and um, moaning, all of the, all the grumbling that we can do when things don't go our way, with rejoicing instead and seeing trials and troubles and privileges and blessings and opportunities to glorify You. Father, make me and make these your people a whole lot less like the people of Israel in the, in the wilderness complaining that they're not back in Egypt and a whole lot more like Paul and Silas in the prison singing hymns in the dark. Father, we want to be those people. And we would ask that you would do this by your mighty work according to your all-sufficient grace, empowered by your Holy Spirit as the Word works in us according to His mighty power. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.